I will be deemed a failure or unfaithful because I didn't stick with it long enough. Mm. Um, And I started to just undo some of that and ask more questions and gain the wisdom of friends. And I think what I realized is I finally found the permission to stay I think it's okay to say that I'm done. What is up, everyone? We are back with another episode of Shaping the Culture. Now, like, let's just get to it. The whole secular, sacred divide. There is no distinction in, in the scriptures. Some of us have trust issues with God. And some of us, yeah, it's like, does God really got us? You can't engage the culture with the gospel that first has not engaged you. Like, you know how people are like, oh, that's just who I am. Nah. nah. <laughs> keep, 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 keep. Drop the mic. Drop, drop the mic. Drop the mic. Shaping the code. What is up, everyone? We are back with another episode of Shaping the Culture. Hope all is well with you all. Uh, listen, fam, we've got a special treat for you guys today. Um, this guest that we're bringing on for this conversation uh, is profound in many ways. He's insightful. He's a husband. He's a father. He's a true artist. He's a filmmaker, preacher, teacher, entrepreneur. He does it all. And uh, so grateful to have him on the channel in this conversation we got we got rich perez on the channel how you doing i'm doing well man i'm doing well we're chilling i mean that was a very generous introduction uh yeah Yeah. it was was great those those all those things you mentioned uh have been all things that i've been i've had my hand in in some way not always at the same time but yeah yes those are all true about me yeah. yeah, man. No, I, I appreciate all that you do. You you could tell that you do everything with so much intention, thought, creativity. And so uh, I'm excited for this conversation uh, because of it. Um, real quick. I So last year we, we put on, uh, we have an annual conference called Glory. And we had uh, invited John O uh, to come speak. And I knew he was coming with a friend, but I didn't know who. And when I uh, got to the airport and I saw that you were with him, I got really excited because I had actually been following your journey for some time and mm. I was familiar with who you were and you know some of the things that you were doing in New York. And just throughout the span that you guys were here, the time span that you guys were here, we got a, a chance to talk a little bit. And one of the things that we talked about uh, was your journey uh, you know, going from being a church planter pastor to stepping down and and kind of pursuing this this new venture that you're pursuing that we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about. Um, so right out the gate, one of my first questions I wanted to ask uh, was, you know, what how did you get into church planting? You know, were you a pastor before you church planted? Um, is this yeah. something that you had desired for the majority of your life is this something that came later on in adulthood uh speak to us a little bit about your journey as a pastor yeah so it's probably important to start uh a, a handful of years before actually pastoring um i had been pastoring prior to church planning okay. uh in okay. 2009 uh so from about 2007 to about 2009 i was pastoring 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's really important to start before that. So in college, I was part of a music and theater group uh, hmm. that traveled. So I did music and theater uh, with a bunch of friends. And among those friends were um, my good friend who I've known. Uh, I've, I don't think I've known anyone else longer than him other than family, of course. Mm. Uh, Alex Medina and then uh, Andy, Andy Minio, who we all became really good friends. And then we had just a, a good group of dudes uh, that were part of this group. But we essentially, what we did in this group was we were part of this uh, traveling music and theater group. Uh, where my buddy Alex and Andy uh, were also a part of. Uh, and we created hip hop music uh, and we created plays that we performed uh, on the street and we traveled really all around uh, the country and even internationally. It was actually the wow. first time I had left the country, or that's not true, but other than going back to my family's uh, home country in the Caribbean, it was the first time that I had left the country uh, for ministry. Uh, or anything else for that matter. Yeah. Uh, we traveled to London. We were there for about a month and a half where we wow. did a lot of um, street evangelism, street theater, uh, and music. Um, we would do these things that now in retrospect, I realized had a, a really terrible name called hit and runs. <laughs> and essentially what we would do is we would, it was a group of like, man, I want to say maybe like 12, 14 of us teenagers from the inner cities of New York. Yeah. And we were in Hackney, which is East London. Yeah. Uh, at that time in the early 2000s, a, a pretty bad part of, of, of London yeah. uh, with a lot of knife crime. And essentially what we would do is we would put out a linoleum floor. Mm. Uh, we would have sp like a massive uh, speaker system uh, playing uh beats yeah. that mostly Alex had produced yeah. and it would be either myself uh Andy another guy named Keith and then this other brother we would just start freestyling to essentially draw a crowd and we would do that in the middle of of what they call the states which were projects yeah uh similar to our projects and we would do that until people kind of gathered and we drew a crowd and then we would do two or three of our own songs, we would perform them. Yeah. And then one of us or our executive director, David Ham, would, you know, offer a gospel presentation and, yeah. and essentially, you know, do an altar call. Wow. And we did that dude for as long as I was part of the group. Uh, and I was part of the group from the time I was 19 to, man, I don't know, I must've been like 25. Yeah. You know, uh, so we were there for several years. So I say all that to say that uh, being part of this traveling hip hop group not only uh, stoked my love and my passion for the arts, particularly theater and music, uh, but it also it also fed my hunger for leadership and proclamation. Like we we did that so often, yeah. um, and it was always very spontaneous. So there was kind of this spontaneous element to sharing our faith that it wasn't manicured it wasn't you know uh well curated it was you had to read the room and you had to figure out what was most appropriate to share in that moment on the street with you know whether it was in the streets of london or the streets of milwaukee or the streets of pasadena california some of the places that we went to like you just 
you had to respond to the moment uh, and your faith had to show up in a really authentic way. And so being part of Truce was fun and it felt like the Mickey Mouse Club in many ways. Uh, but but it also, uh, you know, fed my hunger for leadership and proclamation and rallying and gathering. And so the transition from that to pastoring and church planning, although I didn't see it at the time, yeah. was very seamless. I mean, it was like everything about church planning in particular, I mean, you've got to be a good orator, a good communicator. That's right. You've got to have the ability to pitch vision, yeah. right? Share something convincingly uh, that will then draw a crowd or a following or, you know, a group of people that are kind of committed to that. So yeah. um, we did that. Uh, and so that was kind of the origins. Okay. of some of my love. I was also an athlete in high school okay. and college. So I, I played um, baseball in high school, co uh, basketball in college. And so much of the athlete's mindset, especially when you're my height, I'm a little shorter. So I was always the point guard. Yeah. I um, My responsibility was to make sure that I led people whenever I was on the floor, that it wasn't about me. It was about... Uh, um, the ability, or at least in some degrees, the ability that I had to create a space for other people to flourish as the point guard. So I think the combination of being an athlete, being part of this group, yeah. being given opportunities at my local church to lead uh, youth groups and and things uh, of that nature, like I think all of that uh, created a real desire for me to mm. consider the idea of pastoring. I, I, I loved my faith. Yeah. I loved my spiritual formation in my immigrant, you know, yeah. church that I grew up in. That's right. um, I love the idea of leadership. I also love the idea of novelty or innovation, mm. which the way that that influenced my, you know, the church planning, uh, I wanted to bring my faith to my context in a yes. way that felt novel yeah. and in a way that felt innovative because I felt as though as much as I love my the church that I was spiritually raised in, um, I didn't think that they were doing the best to speak the language of the context of the third generation kid. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they were always welcomed. Um, and that's maybe to the fault of the church that I was in, but I think some of it was just they weren't necessarily reach, aiming to reach that crowd. They were aiming to reach the immigrant. And we weren't immigrants. We yeah. were the kids of immigrants. That's and right. so um, I felt as though that there was a gap. And, you know, many, many years later, when we decided the church plant, what motivated that was some of the things that I've already mentioned, my love for the arts, my love for yeah. proclamation, my love for rallying teams my love for vision, but really also my love for novelty and my love for innovation. How can we make church um, remain true to yeah. what we believe the church is, but also uh, innovate in the way that we actually bring church to the context that we were in? And I think ultimately that gave birth to our, our church program. Yeah, so what I love about what you just shared let me let me rewind a little bit, give some context. So growing up in the Ethiopian church, I think that 
we made the word calling super spiritual and you know it, it was such a it's such a mystical thing what are you created to do right and you right. got to receive a word from the lord the prophets in town he'll tell you the plans that god has for you um but what i love about uh hearing your story and your journey like you said it was seamless um, it was, it was pretty easy. I mean, God had given you some gifts, some desires, some opportunities, you're being obedient in one thing, that thing leading to the next thing. Can you speak to, uh, cause I think this is going to show up again later on as we talk about your transition out of pastoring, but, um, yeah, how the Lord uses desire, the Lord uses gifting to kind of help us see the next step that it doesn't always have to be this this word or prophetic proclamation. It doesn't have to be a dream or a vision um, that we can use some of these things to discern what God is doing in our lives. And maybe the next steps that we need to take in light of that. Yeah, that's really good. Um, you know, I shared with somebody recently that asked me a very similar question about transitioning into church plan, and how that all came about. I remember sharing with that person, like, in retrospect, mm -hmm. I realized that this was far more practical. My moving into yeah. church planning was far more practical than I treated it. Yeah. So this is not to say that there wasn't something mystical about my mm. going into church planting or that there wasn't something deeply um, spiritual about calling. I think that there is a sense in that calling is somewhat mysterious and mm. ethereal because yeah. um you know it, it feels much more uh kind of from within an internal calling yeah. but there's so much about this thing that we thought was mostly mystical that is very practical yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and i just started to kind of like you know connect some of the dots or even identify some of the dots and then connect them i said oh i just I had a real, I had a real love for culture. I had a real love for uh, connection systems building. I had a real deep love for leadership and proclamation. I had a real love that came out of my love of basketball. That came out of my love for the arts. That came out, you know. And I think to your question about what role does desire play when we think about you know, carving out the path of um, our calling. I think it plays a huge role. Like, I think that <clears throat> we often, I think part of the, again, this is, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get to some of this as we, you know, tease out the story a bit more, but yeah. in retrospect, you know, three years removed from having transitioned from pastoral ministry, I think that there are ways that we look at that role and the, origins of the genesis of one stepping into a role like that in ways that I think can feel very uh, imprisoning um, in that uh, we say I, I feel called to be a pastor um, and I don't have to think about anything else anymore. I think this is it for me. This is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life yeah. where uh, I think I don't have to think about it that way anymore because that's far too uh, that that's far too overwhelming of a thought. Mm. 
Um, I commit myself to what I have to do now and what I have to do next. And that may be the extent of how far I go. Right. And so I think that if, if we, if we were to offer ourselves the mission to say, what do I need to do now? What does God, what does God need me to do now? Uh, in light of my desires, in light of my skills, in light of the opportunities that I have, and then possibly what can I do next? Um, but to think about what I need to do for the rest of my life is a really overwhelming thought. And, you know, this is this is actually a really big deal for us now because yeah. we've got a son who's 15. He's a sophomore. And, mm. you know, he's two years away from whatever is next for him. Yeah. And we're having to do a lot of thinking with him about what is next. How do you think about college? How do you think about life after college? How do you think about, you know, whether you want to go to college? Yeah. And... Um, I think sometimes he feels overwhelmed with what's next because he thinks that what's next is what's forever. Wow. And yeah. I don't think any of us went in, I think very few of us went into college or into post high school experiences thinking, I'm going to do this for a time and, mm-hmm. and that's it. Yeah. I think we all were overwhelmed by the idea that I have to have things figured out because this is what you're supposed to do at that's this right. stage. That's right. Um, but that's very, very enslaving of an approach. Um, and it's not a very nuanced way to see your life. And I, I actually think it's kind of self-centered because, wow. um, <clears throat> and self-centering because it's, uh, it puts you in the driver's seat mm-hmm. in many ways. Uh, wow. You think that this is what you have to do and what you will do, not knowing that God 10 years down the line, I'll use myself as an example, may say, hey, I think I want you to pivot. Yeah. It's like, no, but you, I, you called me to this forever. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is the greatest obstacle to doing what's next is what God told us to do first. Mm. You know, wow. like, wow. it's like, yo, God, I can't do this thing that you want me to do next because you told me to do this. Yeah. And, um, we kind of hold we kind of hold the old thing God did with us um, against the new thing that He's inviting us Man, to do. That's a word. Um, and I feel like that um, uh, that poses some real real challenges. Uh, we don't live very nuanced spiritual journeys, and so. Yeah. Anyways, I think I might have rambled a little bit beyond the question you asked, but I, I do think desires, opportunities are are really important, and I think that God honors that. Um, but he may also use those very same desires and opportunities to cause you to pivot uh, at another point. And you've got to be agile and flexible enough to be aware of that and to actually move in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, Rich, you, I mean, you dropped so many gems and my mind is scrambling because I want to respond to a million of those things that you just shared. Uh, but just to, to kind of keep with the story of you entering into church planting and pastoring. Um, was there ever, you know, cause Andy Mino went on to sign with reach records. I think the way I got put on to you was Saturday morning cartoons. If I'm not mistaken, you were one of the songs on that. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, when I think about Alex Medina and what he's done for CHH and beyond it's legendary. Right. Um, but was there ever, you know, going into, I know you had desire, you had, um, 
you know, a conviction to bring novelty to your context. Um, I know that God had given you a burden for leadership and the proclamation of the word. Um, but was there ever a sense in, you know, trying like, you know, as you look at your friends and what God is doing in their lives to wonder like, Hey, am I supposed to follow that direction? Is this really what I'm supposed to do? And, and, and I ask that because sometimes, you know, why the next is a little hazy to us is because we're comparing ourselves to the next person or what God is mm. doing in a friend's life or, you know, the same people that you started with don't always have the same trajectory as we do. And so sometimes that causes us to wonder, are we on the right path? Did we, did we miss it? Did we hear God incorrectly? Like how did you process kind of your direction in light of what God was doing with some of your friends? Yeah. I think that, um, throughout my years of pastoring, particularly whenever I refer to pastoring, I think I mostly refer to my time from the moment we planted uh, our church in New York City to the time that we transitioned out of it. Yeah. I pastored before that, but most of my pastoral experiences came from when I planted. Yeah. Um, I think throughout the time that I pastored for those 10, 11 years uh, at CCF, I was convinced that that was what I was supposed to be doing. Mm. I mean, utterly convinced. I Did I compare myself to others and their journey? I think at times, I mean, I think, yeah, um, yeah for sure at times. But I think having friends like Alex and Andy as an example, and I, I, I have many more friends that are incredibly talented. I mean, I can think of uh, Delgis Mustafa, who, oh, yeah. who now works with Andy, yeah. uh, in minor league, but he has been part, he had been part of our lives for very long. Uh, Johnny Tiola, uh, who we know as words played, like I have so many friends in that world, yeah. uh, that are incredibly talented. Yeah. I think having those kinds of friends did something, uh, did a lot for me at different levels for mm -hmm. one. They were incredible friends that were incredibly supportive of the things that I was doing, not just with lip service, but they were part of my church. Mm -hmm. They submitted to my leadership. It yeah. was like, yo, we believe in what you're doing. In fact, we need you mm -hmm. to do what we do because a lot of the things that we're doing in the arts needs this covering, yeah. right? And it yeah. needs this kind of shepherding. Yeah. So we're going to be your friends and we're also going to submit to your wisdom and leadership as it relates to the the way we show up in the world yeah. and i think particularly andy who uh was a part of our planting i mean he was a huge leadership component yeah. to planting the church with us he led alongside me yeah. uh as well as some others and he also when he wasn't in leadership he was active part of our church and actively submitting this art as as c light as andy yeah. you know to like yo i need your thoughts on this on this yeah. but i think also andy knew that i that i was able to speak in friend as a pastor but also as a creative i think andy respected my creativity as well yeah. Yeah. so i think those guys were helpful to me uh by being supportive i think they were also incredible friends that not only submitted to my leadership as their pastor, yeah. but also navigated the nuance of pastor friend really well, wow. which is a huge gift. Yeah. Those guys reminded me 
Yo, even if we weren't at this church, you would be an integral part of our friendship. Mm. Like, I, I, you, you would still be a friend. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that those guys, by way of their friendship, really kept my pastoral role healthy. Wow. Um, wow. They kept it healthy by reminding me <clears throat> a few things. One, in the end, when the kingdom of God is established, I won't be a pastor. I'll just be a son. That's right. And I think that was really healthy for me to kind of like undergird the way that I existed as a pastor. Yeah. They also reminded me that I was much more than a pastor, mm. but that I was multidimensional. Wow. Um, and I think most guys that don't have relationships that re most pastors that don't have relationships that remind them that they are multidimensional. Good. often fall under the weight of not being seen, mm. right? They just don't feel seen. They don't feel heard primarily because they only exist as a pastor, right. but they're not reminded that they're friends, that they're yeah. a brother, that they're a husband, that they're a dad, that they're a neighbor, that they're a resident. Mm. And those guys were able to really keep me locked into that, them and others, of course. Yeah. But they, those guys also influenced the way that I understood the pastoral role. Mm. I understood myself as a pastor as a very creative endeavor, mm. almost the way perhaps a prophet would view their role. Mm. There's a th there was a level of imagination that I believed that the pastor needed to exist with. Yeah. I planted the church in 2009. I think from like the mid nineties, all the way through the mid 2010s, church planting was ruled by the manager, supervisor, yeah. business person. Yeah. They took their cues from business. They took their cues from management. They took their cues from CEOs, which is why we had so many churches that had great systems. Yeah. yeah. Right over the course of those kind of two and a half decades, three decades. But what I learned in church planting and what I understood about my role is that as churches, we didn't take enough cues from artists. Mm. We didn't take enough cues from prophets, yeah. which allow the pastor and the church to exist with nuance. Mm. When you have a very business mindset, when you take your cues from managers and CEOs, you need a perspective, yeah. uh, uh, perspectives, you need, um, everything feels more binary than anything else. It's right. black, it's white, it's here, it's there, it's in, it's out, it's right, it's wrong. Yeah. And while I think that is true of very few things about our faith, I think the majority of our faith exists in the in-between. Mm -hmm. It exists in the nuance, it exists in the gray, it exists in the amb ambiguous. And prophets and artists know how to exist in the in-between far more yeah. than managers and CEOs do. At least yeah. that's been my experience. Yeah. So those guys as artists and mm. listen, our church was replete with artists. I mean, mm. those are the ones that most people know because they're the bigger names. Yeah, yeah Alex Medina and um <clears throat> andy minio and rightfully so those guys are do have done incredible things yeah. for the christian artist world but we had people like loreni cespedes we had people mm -hmm. like adalise martinez who were unbelievable artists yeah. Yeah. 
that I would even say existed in the marketplace as Christians doing incredible artistic work. And that community of people, CCF, I've always said this about our church. I've always said this particularly about the artists in our church. They helped me so much as a pastor because I took my cues from those artists Mm. and their faith and the way that they saw the world and the way that they expressed themselves in the world. And that, I think, made me a much more creative, imaginative, nuanced pastor and i think i found myself uh, measuring myself up against my colleagues and i was like i I don't feel like i fit with these pastors (laughs) because i think my approach there's very few people that i i thought i related to john o being one of them yeah uh james robeson uh, jordan rice in harlem uh brandon watts in brooklyn like all those guys um kenneth hart who who we planted out of our church, like those guys understood the nuances. And it's no coincidence that I think that most all those guys were uh, minority or black or brown, right? So there's something even about the minority perspective that I think makes room for for nuance and and ambiguity and and tension to exist in that and be okay with it, not rushing out of it. That's what the artists did for me. You know, that's what guys like Andy and Alex and Moreni and Alice and yeah. so many other artists in our church that did that for me. They, they allowed me to see that the pastoral role is mm. a creative role. That's right. That's and that right. our responsibility as pastors is to preach, teach, lead, shepherd in such a way that it creates a world mm. real enough for people to enter into it right. and discover hope. Right. That's good. And so um, I think those guys were also the reasons why I never let go of my creative expressions. Mm. So I think they're the reason why I think you saw me in Saturday morning cartoons because I love hip hop. I think those guys were the reasons why I, you know, I experimented with film even while I was pastoring. It's the reason why I wrote a book that has, well, writing a book in itself is a creative expression, but even the book that I wrote has so many different creative expressions within it. I think those guys, in many ways, the Lord used them to save me because I was beginning to believe that being a pastor meant I needed to abandon these creative expressions because those two things culturally didn't exist in anyone. Or if it existed, it, it existed in a really specific way you know, uh, you had to teach at a seminary. You had to write a book about theology. It's like, what if I don't want to write a book about a, about theology? What if I want to write a book that's uh, fictional? It's a novel. What if I want to make a movie that isn't explicitly Christian? Like, I think those guys helped me along the way yeah. to marry my faith and my expression and the nuance of all of it. Um, mm. So they were a gift to me as much as I think that they would say my leadership and shepherding was a gift to them. I love it. You know, what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, there wasn't much competing or comparing, but really their their friendship and their presence um, fueled your ministry and helped shaped your ministry. And, oh, one thousand percent. It complemented what you what you were doing. Yeah, it, they, they inspired me. Yeah. They inspired me. Yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. For and sure. I feel like that's what true friendship looks like. That's uh, yeah, so much to be said about that. 
and another thing you shared as you were kind of expressing your time as a pastor, um, you said those 10 years that you were doing it, you were a hundred percent in, you know, that that's, you know, you were locked in, you, you had vision, you were present. And I want to, I want to highlight that because I think sometimes when we see um, pastors, you know, move on from, you know, pastoral ministry, it's because maybe they weren't in love with it to begin with. They didn't have a true passion or desire. They, they felt like they had to do that. That was the only way to serve the Lord. They didn't have many other options to serve the Lord or, yeah. you know, but what I appreciate about your story and your transition is, you know, just because you moved on to the next thing didn't mean you didn't love what you were doing. Can you talk about your time as a pastor, those 10 years as a church planter and what that meant to you? Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, it, it meant so much to me, dude. Like, yeah. I think I am convinced that my contribution to the world mm. um, is to be a good listener. I, I, I'm convinced of that. Yeah. I'm convinced that I think God has wired me in a way to. Um, I feel like I sound like Michael Scott. Are you are you an Office fan? Uh, I try to be, but I never, okay. I never, yeah, yeah. But I'm familiar. It's all good. It's <laughs> it's all good. Michael Scott has this one line where he says, "I think my problem is I care too much." Uh. <laughs> um, but that that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is like I think so much about the way that I'm wired is I care about the details of things, yeah. Um, particularly the details of a person's story. Mm. Uh, and to me, one of the most profound uh, moments in the Gospels uh, is in Mark 5, where uh, Jesus stops to, uh, to heal the, the bleeding woman. And the, the context surrounding that, to me, has always been fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, a, I think it's verse 35 in chapter 5, where he says, to, where, where the text says that he stopped and listened to her whole story. Mm. Um, and that has always been so profound to me because... Yeah there was urgency in that story right jairus's daughter was yeah you know right. on the brink of death and jesus found the time to to stop to the mm -hmm. point that jairus's daughter died eventually uh in that in those moments but jesus thought it important to sit and hear the story of this woman that had bled for 12 years more than the 12 year old girl that had mm -hmm that had died. Yeah. Um, and I say all that to say, I, I think for me, pastoring the church was so deeply important because I think I care about the details of story and I care about the details, whether it's an individual story or the story of a community. I will say that part of what made uh, pastoring for those 10 years uh, very motivating for me is we also planted in in my neighborhood. So I grew up in Washington, in particularly in this neighborhood called Dykeman, that's within Washington, uh, you know, the uptown Manhattan area. Yeah. Uh, lived there for, you know, 30 plus years. Mm. Moved in, uh, married with kids two blocks away from where I grew up. And the church was four blocks away from bo both of those streets. And so my life was centered around this very, very small radius. Yeah. Um, and I loved that. Yeah. I loved everything about that story, right? That I came back home, yeah. uh, started a church. And 
I was enamored with that story, but I think I was also enamored with the idea of of the people mm. of that place. Yeah. And the novelty and the innovation for me from a theological standpoint was what role does place play in our spiritual formation yeah, what role right. does social location play this was a people group that had been primarily immigrants from the caribbean mostly from the dominican republic of which i am i'm like all right we need to talk about how our ethnic heritage and identity is married to our spiritual right. formation and what role does the story of this geographical place yes. play in the way that we disciple people and i was yeah. i was consumed by how to yeah. figure that out and i feel like i'm still learning things about the store the role of place and the role of ethnic identity yeah. as it relates to our spiritual formation and yeah. that made i say all that to say that that motivated me all the more to be planted there, to listen well to the individual stories of people that were coming to our church, but to listen well to the stories of my context yeah. so that I wouldn't behave and or do ministry in a way that that overlooked what the community was saying. Yeah. I, d I never wanted to do anything that I didn't think the people needed right. by virtue of the way that I listened to the story. So my time there was so formative for me. Um, I think it made me a better listener. I think it made me much more, uh, more much more compassionate human being. Yeah. I think it made me a, a, a more patient human being um, yeah. and a more patient witness of the kingdom. But particularly as it relates to the church and the people there, yeah. I loved everything about it. Yeah. Well, let me not lie. That's not entirely <laughs> true. I didn't like the administrative aspects of my leadership. True creative. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't like I didn't like it. But we we filled those roles with people that did love that stuff, right. right? So that's right. I loved preaching. Yeah. I loved being able to uh share the truths and wisdoms and beauties of god with novelty yeah. um it was always a challenge of mine to always look at a passage with a new or fresh perspective not right. to necessarily listen to the way that it has been preached right. but what's another way that we can look at this well-worn passage and discover something new if truly the word of god uh is inexhaustible if god truly is inexhaustible then maybe there are ways that we haven't looked at this passage and and could discover something new i loved preaching i loved listening to the people's feedback even when it was negative and when it was hard to hear it was critical like i didn't enjoy it yeah, yeah, but yeah. i thought it was formative that's right and i right. appreciated it yeah. um and i think it made me a better communicator and i think it made me a better pastor yeah. um I loved to smell like the sheep mm -hmm. because I was among them. That's right. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a season in my leadership that I was afraid of the sheep's bite, mm -hmm. um, and it and it didn't uh, it, it didn't help my leadership. Yeah. Um, I think there were a, a lot of factors that played into that. I was young, um, impressionable, and. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that I think fed into that, but I loved being with the people because I felt that the people were the ones giving me the content. Right. I, I, That's right. 
if I didn't spend time with people listening to their stories, their challenges, their sins, I'd have nothing to preach about. <laughs> That's right. You know, like I, I, I can share the news of Jesus, but I didn't even understand preaching that way. Yeah. I understood preaching as sharing the news of Jesus yeah. from within the stories of the people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because that's what actually, you know, um, th that's what actually transforms people. Yeah. I didn't want to simply be a good orator. Yeah. I didn't simply want to be a good communicator or be said of you're a good preacher. Yeah. I wanted to use my words efficiently so that people would actually see the possibility of change in their lives. But if I didn't know their stories, I could never preach to their circumstance. That's good. That's good. So to me, I felt like preach preaching has always been to me about listening first. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. never been about proclamation. It's been about listening. And from that proclamation is birth. So very long winded way of saying I no, loved, good. I loved, pastoring i loved yeah. being with the people up and until the point yeah. up and through the point where we decided to transition out of it i mean i i still think that that was one of the most heartbreaking decisions to make was to transition out of yeah. uh pastoral ministries because i loved it yeah, I yeah. Loved it. there were aspects about it that were really difficult and we can get into that but yeah. to your question i loved what i did yeah, I love that. And it's hard to say no to it. And thank you for sharing that because I think that, you know, we're, we're talking about transition here. Um, we're going to talk about your transition out in just a second. But I think that we believe the lie that, um, you know, the, the prerequisite for change is, uh, you know, just like a lost passion for whatever it is that we're currently doing. Mm. Or yeah. a, a lack of love for what it is that we're doing. But to your point, it's, it's much more nuanced than that, you know. And I love how you were able to acknowledge that even the difficult things were um, helpful in your spiritual formation and in your development as a leader and as a human and as a pastor and all that, all those good things. I, I wanted to ask if, if you did love it, if you did appreciate it, um, why transition out? And I, yeah. I, I asked this question intentionally because if it's some of the things that you've already shared, I think there's this, this lingering thought among pastors that I have to do this for the rest of my life, even if I feel called to something else or I, I desire to do something else. Um, we celebrate people who transition from career to career outside of the ministry world, but for whatever reason, when it comes into pastoral ministry, you're, you're, you're kind of stuck. You, you got to do this thing because if you stop doing this thing, then you missed God's voice and you're not in God's will because pastoral ministry is a forever thing. Uh, why transition out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I'll speak only of, of why I particularly transition out, although I think that uh, we need to probably reimagine the way that we think about the pastor's role in the church as a whole. But specifically for me, like, 
I think there was some aspects of it that felt circumstantial. Um, so like everyone else, 2020 was really difficult. Um, yeah. Financially, I felt like we were doing okay. Uh, and I say because I know that financials were really uh, a challenge for churches in the pandemic. For us, not necessarily. Yeah. Um, but the pandemic was hard leading the church through this, figuring out, having a lot of questions about how we do church, how we navigate church, dealing with losses of yeah. various kinds yeah. uh, was, was very difficult. In July, uh, we lost a dear friend. One of the mm. artists that I mentioned, Alalise Martinez, uh, was a staple in our community. We lost her to cancer mm. and she was young. And I had previously, you know, officiated her and her husband Heidel's wedding, you know, not too long uh, before that or prior to that. Um, and I just took that death really hard. It wasn't my first death uh, from the church. I mean, I'd done many funerals uh, up until that point. Um, but it just it just hit a little different. She was a, a dear friend. She was one of those people that, you know, her and her husband would be in my life and are in my life um even if they weren't in the church you know they just were friends and i took the death pretty hard i ended up being in the er five times in the course of a, a month and a half just with all sorts of discomfort pain high blood pressure um my body was just reacting to the stress and anxiety of the season uh, not just her death but everything else leading up to that and also the the occupational hazards of pastoring. Like, yes, I loved I loved pastoring. I loved what I did. But there are occupational hazards to pastoring. I mean, you are emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and physically invested, very much like social workers and teachers and any uh, a career or profession that centers people there are occupational hazards sometimes very insidious and very um uh very dangerous occupational hazards and so i think my body uh was processing and responding to the stress and anxiety of that season and i was just not well like i mean i was emotionally distraught at the loss it's almost as if uh, her death, as soon as we buried her, my body was like, yeah, that's it. You're, you're like, we're going to respond. You've carried enough. Wow. And my body just kind of shut down in all sorts of ways and flaring up in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. And it was my body telling me, I often say about that season that there were two major prophets that the Lord used to talk to me. Yeah. Uh, the one was my wife and the second was my body. Mm -hmm. uh, both speaking very loudly mm. about um, things that I think God wanted me to hear. Yeah. Uh, and it was almost as if my body knew before my mind did mm. that I had carried enough. Yeah. Um, and so why transition? Um, practically, I felt as though it would be a dis, it would not be very loving mm. of my family mm. and of myself to love myself in a way that I think God would want me to love myself, um, to continue to, to pastor mm. 
And, you know, one could make the argument that I could have just changed the circumstances of my leadership and kind of created more help. That requires a lot more. Mm. That requires a lot of time. Yeah. It requires a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it requires a lot of energy, all of which I did not want to t- continue to give more time. Yeah. And I did not want to continue to give more money, you know, because I'm stewarding other people's money um, to to at the expense of of what I was actually going through. I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to keep putting my body through that. So practically, I didn't think it would be very loving of of ways that I think the Lord would want would want me to love myself. And it wouldn't be loving of the ways uh, it wouldn't be loving to my family. Mm. But I think also kind of like philosophically theologically i i was starting to feel as though something didn't feel right that i started to feel shame at thinking that i could possibly end what i thought god had called me to like how could i say no to something that god has called me to now i feel disobedient but i also feel like i'm very fragile and it also feels as though a two-month sabbatical wasn't going to do it that this was far more like core and i needed to like really take time to undo this and to give myself a certain time for rest or sabbatical or recovery wasn't nearly enough um but i started to feel badly that at the shame that i was feeling i'm like lord i want to always believe that you can use even shame to bring awareness to me about something that you may want to say, or that the shame is not rightful, that it's not a healthy kind of shame. And I I think what I started to kind of unpack was the shame was more because culturally, from a ministry standpoint, the, the ministry culture made me believe that this was something that I entered into and stayed in it for a very long time, if not forever. Yeah. Um, I was convinced of that by way of who we celebrated in ministry, uh, by way of who we pedestaled or who we deemed as faithful and who we deemed as unfaithful. And I'm like, well, we usually call the unfaithful people the people that transition out or are removed out because of unfaithfulness or some kind of sin. and we usually celebrate the people that are faithful because they've been at it for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Yeah. So I feel like I have to stay there in order to be considered faithful. Wow. Um, and if I transition, even if it is for what I think a good reason, I will be deemed a failure or unfaithful because I didn't stick with it long enough. Mm. Um, wow. And I started to just undo some of that and ask more questions and gain the wisdom of friends. and. I think what I realized is I finally found the permission to say, I think it's okay to say that I'm done. Yeah, yeah. And it was really important for me to make that public to whatever yeah. public that means. I know I'm not a hugely public figure, but I know I'm public enough yeah. for me to say, I, I want to make this transition public because I'm choosing to transition. Mm-hmm. I'm not being removed. I don't have any hidden sins. Mm-hmm. My relationship with my wife is healthy. My relationship with my kids is healthy. And I thought it was particularly important to some degree for me to do that, considering that at the very same time, 
everything was happening with Carl Lentz in our city, in our neighborhood. Um, and this is no shade at all to Carl Lentz. I know, you know, we're several years removed from that. And I know that yeah. things have gone well in their recovery. And I'm really, I'm really glad for that. Yeah. But I thought it was really important for me to say, hey, I'm transitioning. Um, I have discovered the permission to do this theologically and missiologically, mm. uh, but also practically and relationally and emotionally. And I think it's okay um, to do that. Mm. And then the last component as to why, and I don't think I discovered this until I was already here in Atlanta and somewhat had my feet dug into uh, this new career path, but I realized that it was okay for me to transition because initially I thought I was abandoning my call, mm. but only because I reduced my call mm. to my role. Mm -hmm. So like God called me to be a pastor. No, God called me to proclaim mm. his goodness and to do that in a in a in a unique way right through proclamation through the rallying and gathering of people through the caring of souls yeah. right yeah. and the way that that was best expressed in that season was by pursuing pastoring mm. what i started to realize years into this or a year or two years into what i'm doing now is that i didn't abandon the call i just pivoted expressions mm. That's so i still feel very compelled yeah. and convinced that I am functioning within the call that God has yeah. given me to proclaim his good news, yeah. to help create the, uh, to help share the story of God and help others find their stories within God. I've just pivoted expressions of doing that, of yeah. how to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll give you one, one small example. We transitioned to Atlanta in January of 2001. Mm -hmm. I started to explore film in, in, a, in a real way. I mean, I had previously done some film stuff, but I had started pursuing film in a real way. I did something with a buddy of mine who said, hey, look, I need a, I need a production coordinator. I'm like, what is that? I don't, know. I don't even know what that role is. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. He's like, hey, just handle all, all the food and any miscellaneous stuff that I need you to do. So essentially like a PA, yeah. production assistant. And here I am, a 38-year-old dude <laughs> with a previous life doing what feels like entry-level work. I had to deal with the, yeah. psych the, the, the psychology of that and the emotion of all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I said, yo, I'm here to do the work. It's whatever. That work got me seen by the DP or the camera guy of the yeah. of the project. And he's, you know, eight months later, he said, hey, I'm doing a short film here in North Carolina. I'd love for you to be my assistant director. Mm. In the world of film, that's a that's a huge jump from yep. being a PA to being an assistant director. I mean, a massive jump. Right. I was dealing with all sorts of imposter syndrome. Mm. But I said, yes. Mm go to North Carolina, I'm there for like five days and I'm on set and I'm, I'm just, I'm doing the best I can, yeah. right? I'm just like, I'm using the little knowledge that I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be a mature presence on set. Yeah. I'm trying to be as helpful as possible with the yeah. tasks that they've given me. Yeah. 
at the end of the production, I go to my boy who hired me, Derek, uh, Derek Bills, shout to Derek. Um, I asked him, I said, dude, why'd you hire me? Like, I got no experience in this stuff. And he said, Rich, do you think that I hired you because you know what buttons to press on the camera? Do you think that I hired you because you know the science of lighting, yeah. uh, you know, lighting a scene? Do you think I hired you because of your technical acumen? He said, absolutely not. I know that you're not skilled in those things, but I didn't hire you for those things. Mm. I hired you because you're a great listener, mm. because you're great with people and you help people find the bigger meaning of whatever it is mm. that you're over. Yeah. And those were one of the first few moments that mm. I thought to myself, oh, I'm still pastoring. Yeah, <laughs> I'm right. still operating in my shepherding and pastoral gifts and abilities. Yeah, Though granted, I am not a pastor, yeah. but I am shepherding on set, yeah. whether I'm director, whether I'm writing, yeah. whether I'm producer. Yeah. The thing that Rich Perez will always bring to an environment is this ability to, this ability to care and granted, I know this perfectly. But I'm saying these are the things that I think over the course of time I've grown to be really good. Yeah. Rich Perez will always listen carefully. Yeah. Yeah. Rich, per Rich Perez will always care deeply. Yeah. And Rich Perez will always artfully and as skillfully as he can connect things that are happening in the space to mm. meaning, to greater purpose. Mm. That's what I've always done. Whether I was doing a hit and run music in London, or whether I was rallying a group of people to pitch a vision for church planning, or whether I was sitting across the table listening to somebody telling me about their divorce or their addiction to pornography, or whether I was on a film set directing a movie, wow. I was doing the same thing. So I just cool. didn't always see the through line. Mm. And while I will be very vocal that I am no longer a pastor in the sense that I was. Yeah. And I have a huge amount of, a huge amount of respect for pastors uh, in large part because I did it. Yeah. I will be very vocal about that, but I will also be very vocal about the fact that what I do now is very pastoral in nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm creating stories. I'm shepherding people. I'm leading people. Yeah. Um, I'm just, my expression has changed but my calling remains the same. And I, I say that to, to answer the question, that's why I felt okay leaving yeah. because I realized I, my leaving pastoral ministry wasn't an abandonment of my call. Yeah. It was just a re-expression of it. And I think that gave me a lot of comfort. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I'm like mindful of the time like we're we're like an hour in and I feel like we could easily go for another hour. Uh you get it, bro. Yeah, but I, I just that was so good, Rich. Thank you for sharing that. That was beautifully said. I wanted to ask for somebody who's listening in right now, maybe watching on YouTube, listening on Spotify, um, who's scared to transition into the next thing. Maybe it's not a pastor listening, but maybe lawyer or an artist or whoever it is and they're afraid of the unknown um they're afraid of the next step i'm thinking about your son who's thinking about the next college do i want to take that route do i 
Um, what would be your encouragement and advice? Like what, based off your experiences, based off what you've seen God do in your life, um, why, why would you encourage that person to, to just step out, have faith, and, and what could they believe for on the other side? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the best way to answer that is twofold. And it's inspired by something that my wife told me when I was in a really dark place in 2020. Mm. Um, in my darkest moments of 2020, when I went through kind of an emotional, mental crisis, I wasn't sure if I was going to see the next day. I was just that filled with anxiety and fear and fragility. And uh, I remember, um, you know, I was uh, in our bedroom, just writing in my journal, reflecting really through tears. It felt like almost every day of the summer and fall of 2020. Um, my journaling is that that particular journal is filled with a lot of watermarks mm -hmm. because I felt like I just uh, wrote uh, to the Lord through my tears. But I remember one day I was sitting in my room and kind of weeping and, and writing and my wife comes upstairs and she said, you okay? And I said, not really, but I wasn't okay yesterday. I don't think I'll be okay tomorrow. Like I just got to deal with the fact that this is where I am. And I said, I feel like I'm in a really dark place. And, and, you know, she was, she did some goofy things, you know, which is part of her personality. She did, she said and did some goofy things, but then she, she got serious and she said to me, she was like, you know, it's interesting when we think about our, our moments of darkness, we get so terrified primarily because we can't see, we, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's next. We just feel the pain of not knowing because it's dark. Um, and this was kind of centered around Psalm 139. We were having this discussion and she said, but it's interesting. It's only dark to us. Mm. It's not dark to God. Mm. Because as Psalm 139 says, you know, the, the night is like the day to you. The dark is like the light to you. Yeah. Um, and if you read the rest of the Psalm, what you realize is that God exists mm -hmm. within that darkness that is so overwhelming to you. Yeah. And I guess what I would say to anybody that is wondering how to move forward or, or to do what ne what's next is release yourself from the thought that you have to know what's next yeah. right or the fear of it yeah. primarily because while clarity and certainty have some relationships mm. they are not they're they're not prerequisites to one another wow you don't need to have clarity in order to be certain mm, right that's good it helps to have clarity yeah right it helps to have clarity but demanding clarity to some degree is in part because we want to have control of our certainty I want to know that I can move about the world with greatest certainty, so give me utmost clarity. Mm -hmm. But we know that we don't have clarity uh, most times. So does that mean that you can't not move about the world with certainty? Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Yeah. 
because what you can be certain about, even with the lack of clarity, is that you are deeply loved, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You are absolutely deeply loved. The cross is the greatest evidence of that. The empty tomb is the greatest evidence of its power yeah. um, because even sincerity demands proof. Mm-hmm. And God gives it to us yeah. in the empty tomb. Yeah. And you can be certain of that. You may not have clarity about what happens next, Mm -hmm. but you have the certainty that you are loved and the certainty that far, long before you ever go to a place, God is already there. That's good. And this is is true of the way that we understand the stories in scripture to the very core of the gospel of God. The very reason why we're able to traverse the dark moments of our lives, the the very reason why we're able to traverse the uncertainties of our lives, the very reasons why we're able to traverse the hardships of our lives is because we believe in a God who has traversed the uttermost dark places of the world and has come out from them and invites us to follow him. So the the to me, the goodness of what is true about Jesus is that however scary next is Mm. God has already traversed what is next that's good that's so good and that you can take a step forward because the truth of the gospel says that God has already been there and in fact God is already waiting for you there and this is the beauty of the uh, the omnipresence of God that he is both with you but he is also waiting for you. Yeah, that's a word. <laughs> uh, and I think that that is, um, mm. I think that that's what makes the gospel of Jesus, the truth and the the goodness of Jesus so palpable and mm. tangible, right? Not like ethereal and he died for me on a cross, but how does that show up in my life? Yeah. Yeah. How, does the, uh, how does the cross of Jesus and how does an empty truth translate into the way that I move about and traverse the world, Mm. my hardships, as much as my celebrations. And to anyone that's reluctant, first, I would say, I totally get it. You have reason to be reluctant. The darkness is scary. Ambiguity is scary. It's scary. Um, Not knowing lack of clarity is scary. But clarity is not a prerequisite to certainty. And I think that the cross and the empty tomb both give us reason to walk about the world with great certainty, even when we lack clarity. Mm-hmm. And it also gives us the courage to say, God is both with me in this trembling. Yeah. He's also waiting for me yeah. on the other side of this trembling. So and uh, I think that's really good news. Man, I'm, I'm so full from this conversation. Um, it felt like a therapy session, really. And uh, if nobody else gets anything from it, I know I've truly been blessed by this conversation. Thank you for gifting us with your story, with your wisdom, with your time, with your experience. Um, I so appreciate you and seeing what you've been able to do on the other side encourages me, inspires me, and gives me hope that, as you were just sharing, that the Lord is there and the Lord has something special planned. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, brother, thank you for coming on the podcast. Do you have any last thoughts or insights to share before we wrap this thing up? I know you you're, you just got so much in you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Nah, nah, man, nah. I, I, I think, uh, I think what I said last is probably the thing I want people to take, uh, take away the most. So, That's this was good, man. Thank you for having me, bro. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on. We might need to come have you on again. Maybe do a part two because I. I feel like we just scratched the surface there. Uh, on I'm on al- I'm always down, bro. I'm always down. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Thank you. Well, for everybody who tuned in and listened to this episode, thank you so much. Um, I hope this conversation blessed you. Until next time, family, peace and grace.